So <clears throat> throughout the uh, summer and spring, uh, my family had many opportunities, as I'm sure yours did, uh, to watch a lot of movies. Uh, and so we were able to sort of revisit uh, the uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe many times and watch some of those great superhero movies. Now, Kurt and I are having a conversations about making sure that I use uh, illustrations from uh, things that people can connect with. But that's okay. If you hate superhero movies, it's okay. You don't have to really have watched it to really get the point of this one last movie because I've decided that the movie Avengers Endgame has entered my top ten movies of all time. There. I've said it. And, and I, what I wanted to do is take a moment to look at what really powers the emotional engine of that movie. And again, if you've not seen it, then spoilers alert are, are going to abound. Because at this last movie, there's one Avenger who is going to give his life to save the world. And that character is where the whole saga started. He's Iron Man. Uh, Tony Stark is this cocky, playboy, uh, arrogant genius. But he's also very complicated because he has this very difficult relationship with his father. Anybody relate to that? Uh, th there's a scene from a previous movie in Iron Man 2 where uh, uh, Tony Stark is talking to the guy who heads his sort of Avengers organization, Nick Fury. And he says this about his dad. He says he was cold, calculating, never told him he loved me, never even told me he liked me. So it's a bit hard for me to digest that he said that the future, the whole future is riding on me thing. I don't get that. You're talking to a man whose happiest day of his life was shipping me off to boarding school. So there are daddy issues there in Iron Man, correct? But what's interesting is that later on in the final movie, through a little time travel trick, Tony Stark gets to meet up face to face with his father. And something happens in that interaction that sets Tony on this trajectory to give up his life and to save the human race from destruction. Hold that thought. And I want you to think about this for a moment. How does someone become the kind of person who willingly sacrifices for the life of others? How do they become that? How does someone who decide that they're going to be the kind of person who marches into danger against enemies with courage? How does someone love well, learn to become someone who cares and works hard to do the right thing? My guess is there's lots of opinions that people have on this. Some will say, well, you know what, Les? People are just born that way. You know, the planets line up and you get some kind of combination between you know dna and and just luck and people are just nice others of you say no 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 it's actually more their environment you know if you got the right kind of parenting you know the right kind of educational opportunities uh, the right kind of of foods that people would eat then suddenly you can produce great uh, heroes in other words people believe that heroes are either born or they're made but I think it might surprise you to find that the Bible actually has a view on this. How does someone achieve the character traits that the Bible describes as heroic? I'd put the Bible up there with all of the great codes of conduct created by the great religions of the world, mostly because Jesus doesn't just teach adherence to outward behavior, but also a heart that is molded uh, to love those standards that he, can, that he gives to us. But what I'm fixated on this morning is, how does that happen? 
How do we become that person? How does someone change from, becoming, from being a self-obsessed, self-absorbed individual to caring about those around him in a self-sacrificial way? And I've been leading us through this premise, to this premise, through this story of David and the ark. So that we can answer this question, how does someone get to a point where they don't think less of themselves or think little of themselves, but that they don't think of themselves at all? How does one get there? And in 2 Samuel 6, David has discovered that there actually is a way into the transformational presence of God, but it's only going to come through a place of death and suffering and of blood. But once he gets it, it changes him significantly. So I want to unpack this with three topics. Number one, I want to look at David's transformation. Number two, I want to look at David's antagonism through Michael, his wife. And number three, to look at David's example. Okay? So first of all, David's transformation. There's a lot here. Uh, Verse 14 and 15 show us that David is now dancing before the Lord. There's musical instruments and there's shouting. And what David has done, we find out in in verse 14, is he he has put on a linen ephod. Well, that is the uniform of a priest. So what David has done is he's becoming someone who wants to represent the people of God to God. By the way, that's the reverse of the role of a prophet, right? A prophet represents God to the people, speaks on his behalf. A priest sort of sacrifices on behalf of the people to God. So that's what David, what's happened to David, first of all, is he's become someone who is ready to sacrifice for his people. He's ready to give up his life for his people. He's going to be a self-sacrificial king. What's interesting, though, about this passage is that David has been dancing before. You know, back in verse 5 that we looked at the beginning of June, right before Uzzah was struck down, David and the crowd were dancing there as well, which I think is very interesting because what it means is, is it's possible for us to have all of the, uh, the attachments of a show that we're putting on for God, you know, some kind of emotional response even to God, but if it's not rooted in the truth about who He is, then it actually doesn't merit you anything. It certainly doesn't change you. Look, we play this game with each other, and oftentimes with God, don't we? We th- say to ourselves, well, you know, God, I meant well. When I was a kid, I was pretty kind of worked up about you. I don't really feel that way much anymore. But what happens is you've robbed your relationship to God of any kind of motivational energy. And I think what the passage is saying is is not only is God not pleased with it, but it's not going to last. It doesn't do what happens to David. Hence the whole lesson for us in the first place. There's something else, though, that's changed in David, and that is that he's gotten generous. Verses 18 and 19, we see that David has made it his determination to mark his kingship by being a blessing to his people. In other words, he looks and says, I don't want to be the kind of king that controls and manipulates my subjects. Oh, there were plenty examples of that in ancient Near Eastern kings, right? But he says, no, what I want is for them to experience joy. I want them to be happy. (laughs) And so what he does is he makes sure that everyone leaves with what? Bread, meat, and raisins. (laughs) Sustenance, flavor, and sweetness. That's what he wants to give. David has now corrected the trajectory of his reign to establish what every historian agrees is the golden age of Israel's history. Why? Because he's determined to be a blessing to the people around him. Okay, now seriously, how do you account for this? (laughs) 
Because I want to submit to you that David, in the, in the days after the untimely death of Uzzah, as he spent time struggling through just what had happened, that he finally saw how the ark could come to him through this place of sacrifice and blood sacrifice. And it produced in David a joy that made him forget himself. In other words, once he sees the blessing that God has been to him, it overflows in blessings to other people. That's his transformation. And so look, I want to root as deeply as I can in us this principle. The Bible teaches that you are only capable of as many feats of human greatness to the degree that you have been shown the great grace by the God of the universe. This, this is an absolutely foundational truth. You are only capable of as many feats of greatness to the degree that you've been shown grace by the God of the universe. We are wired in such a way <laughs> that our acts of altruism are only going to be motivated by a transformed heart. That's the only way we work. And only something, that's only something that God can do in the cross. Now look, to really unpack and illustrate this, I want to look at the contrast though. And that's my second point. You see David's transformation, but you really see this vividly when you see David's antagonism with his wife, Michael. Verse 16 says that David is sort of dancing as the ark enters, but his wife apparently is viewing from some place above the sort of uh, meandering crowd. Her name is Michael. Michael is the daughter, if you will remember, of the former king, King Saul, uh, a self-obsessed, image-conscious egomaniac. Uh, we can all only imagine what it must have been like for Michael to grow up in a household like that. So when David returns home, she looks at him as kind of like, David, David, this is beneath you. How embarrassing. Do you know what kind of people you were mixing with down there? Do you realize who these people were? Now, look, what's she so upset about? Well, in verse 20, she starts to mock him and basically say, whoa, way to distinguish yourself today, David. You were down there celebrating with, do you know who they were? They were the female servants of your servants. Now, look, you got to understand, that's about as low as you could go. I mean, not only were they talking about his servants, the servants were the lowest of the social caste of his time, but actually the servants of the servants. <laughs> and not only that, they were women. The lowest possible rung of social disenfranchisement, David says, I have now become comfortable mixing with those people. As a matter of fact, they're not those people anymore. And actually, not just mixing. It says in the passage there that David was uncovering himself in the presence of these people. Now look, don't, don't, don't misread that to think that David was dancing naked in front of them. That's not what it means. The Hebrew word there, to uncover yourself, means basically to disrobe. In other words, it means to remove any kind of semblance from your outward body of your status or your rank. David has taken off his kingly crown. He's removed his robes. In other words, David has removed from any sight, from anybody around him, of any sort of features that would be on his body that would make these slave girls think that he thought he was better than anybody else. And Michael hates it. She even looks at him and says, you're just like a vulgar fellow. That doesn't mean that he's dirty or profane. What it means is that he's common. You're a lowlife is what you've become, David. You see, David doesn't need you to know that he's the king anymore. 
What Michael is convinced what is going to happen is that this is going to cost David in leadership. Why? Because she's been to the King Saul school of kingship. And David, this is going to cost you. This is not the way. But David actually has got a lesson for in verses 21 and 22. Look at that. He says there, he says, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father. Now, that's not David kind of spiking the ball in the end zone on Michael there. What he's trying to do is he's trying to orient her to become a better listener. And what he's saying is, Michael, God brought me here for a reason. turns out that C.H. Spurgeon has a sermon that he wrote on those three words, who chose me. Spurgeon was wont to do that. And basically the the title of uh, Spurgeon's sermon is, David dances before the Lord because of his election. See what he's saying? David understands that his status is all of grace. And because it's all of grace, it's now neutralized every other physical attribute that might sort of uh, uh, give him privilege in his context. That's what's changed. But the second thing that he says, he's got another lesson to teach Michael, because he says, look, you don't understand. These slave girls that you're talking about, you're wrong. They won't despise me. As a matter of fact, they're going to hold me in more honor. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, look, they're going to respect me more because honestly, if I had lorded my authority over them, they would have had reason to resent me. But now they're going to respect me more because you want to know why? I knew how to be among them. I came down on their level. I became accessible to them. <laughs> you know, and what he says is he's like, look, you think this is debasing? He says, I will make myself even more contemptible than this. It's as if he's saying, look, you're noticing my lowliness? Hey, Michael, you better get used to that because there's plenty more where that came from. And it gives me an opportunity to do my favorite sermon illustration of all time. This is in the top three, easily. (laughs) And it's a story about Spurgeon, where Spurgeon is standing outside of his, uh, his church on a particular Sunday morning. And an elderly lady approaches him just in a huff. And she's like, Mr. Spurgeon, I want you to know I find you to be the most arrogant, uncultured pig that I have ever heard speak. And then she storms off. Well, the whole crowd grows quiet. All eyes on Spurgeon. What in the world is he going to say? Spurgeon elbows the elder next to him and goes, she doesn't know the half of it. Here's what's funny about that story. Like, isn't that endearing? Don't you kind of want to hang out with somebody like Spurgeon? Why? Because for the people who desperately want respect from you, isn't it funny how they never have it? But the people who are just sort of big-hearted and open to God's love for them, somehow they look and they're able to say with David, I can't lose people's respect because I don't care about their respect. I've been judged guilty by the God of the universe and survived it. What do I care about your opinion of me? I don't need for people to look at me and say, oh, here comes David the royal one. He's lost his need for that. David got it. He saw that in his inability to please God with any of his moral efforts, it has now supernaturalized his character. Reminds me very much of another story very similar to this in uh, the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah 6, we get the story of Isaiah being called by God. And he comes and he appears to him in this great glory, glorious manifestation. And all of a sudden, Isaiah's like, ah, I'm undone. The words that I speak, I'm a man of unclean lips. 
But of course, the seraph comes over to him and grabs some tongs from, guess where, the altar, touches his lips and sears it. And then the voice from the throne looks at him and goes, look, I've got a task for someone. I need someone to go out and, and actually do a job where no one's ever going to listen to you. I, I want you to partake some, uh, to, to preach to a group of people that will never outwardly respond to your message ever. And, and probably you'll be viewed as a professional failure for the most of your career. Any takers? And you know what Isaiah says? Here am I, Lord. Send me. Look, Isaiah discovered what David understood, right? It's that when God all of a sudden comes along and he begins to work in me and show me my mass failure, the second that he accepts me in the midst of my failure, I am supernaturalized. David doesn't matter that, he saw, that people saw him as a failure. He knew what God thought of him. And then, of course, our passage ends pretty dramatically because verse 23 says that Michael, the daughter of Saul, never got to have kids anymore. And people completely throw their hands up. They're like, what? He did it again? First of all, he kills us, and now you're going to stri strike barren this poor woman who maybe got in a bad mood one afternoon and like, complained with her husband? Hey, but look, understand something. In the chapters that follow, God is about to make some very big promises about David's family. Not the least of which is someone from his family was going to eventually become the king of all Israel and sit on the throne of the universe. Lots of promises about God's family. And so God looks and says, you know what? The king is not going to come from this mother, this spoiled, pretentious, condescending brat will not be the mother of, of, of this family. Now, lest you get all condescending yourself and be like, that's exactly right. I'm glad I didn't choose one of those bad people. Do you remember what mother he did choose to bring it through? Her name was Bathsheba. Bathsheba, the one who actually was an adulteress and sort of had a family that was broken up, who faced the incredible injustice herself and also the incredible sort of burden of having to lose her husband. Look, y'all, until we see that in every other religion, the thing that keeps you from God is your failure. But in this religion, the thing that keeps you from God is the refusal to admit that you're a failure and allow him to come along and swallow that up in grace. Yeah, so David's antagonism unpacks that beautifully, doesn't it? So let me finish with this one last thought, and that's David's example. We've seen David's transformation, his antagonism. Look at his example. Because we're about ready to launch here in just a few weeks before we do a review of what really makes our, 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 our church who we are in the new building. We're going to unpack a series on what it means for God to sort of fix this world. But of all the most important things for us to remember before we start that series, we have to embrace the manner by which God creates this. And we have to embrace the fact that it's all by grace and not by your performance. Because grace gives you this treasury of resources that your moral efforts could never grant you. Now, I've even made a list here. It occurs to me that grace gives you freedom to be able to please God, even in the midst of your persistent failure. How? Because grace places you, as Paul will say, in Christ. Which means that God has orchestrated the means by which he doesn't look at me as if I am myself, but he looks at me as if I am his son Jesus. That's what that means. Everything that may be said to be true of Jesus is now true of me because of the cross. Secondly, grace frees me up to have relationships in a way in which I never did before. 
the, the research is coming out that a lot of our, our parents' and grandparents' generation, though capable of remarkable feats culturally, and they deserve to be honored for it, failed in presenting to us this sort of stiff upper lip of an invulnerable life. We don't talk about those kinds of things in this family. We allow those family secrets to remain swept under the carpet and never have to come out and to be dealt with. Actually, what we're finding now is it's transparency that draws us together. <laughs> it's seeing the brokenness in my family and them owning our own sin. That's what draws us together. Thirdly, grace gives me the ability to give criticism without having to crush the other person I'm criticizing, but it also allows me to receive criticism without being crushed by it. Grace balances us by getting us better able to feel like I'm not being picked on all the time. Grace removes our, our peevishness, our pettiness, our prickly nature. Fourthly, grace joins two aspects of me that are oftentimes in conflict. On the one hand, my humility, but on the other hand, my confidence. How do you put those two together? Well, you look at the cross. The cross will make you ultimately humble because Jesus had to die for my sin. His coming to earth was not a compliment. But the cross is also this ultimate demonstration of God's love, and so I can be confident at the same time that I'm humble. No other world religion has this. Fifth, grace makes me able to purge my life of everything that drives me further from others. It's my insecurity that makes me hard to be around. Because the truth is, I'm, I'm trying to posture myself to measure up to your expectations. Grace gives me the ability to laugh at myself, to sort of purge me of defensiveness. And I can stop gossiping about people because I don't need to be viewed as better than you. Finally, grace gives us the ability to take on impossible tasks <laughs> and love impossible people. Look, we embark here next week on a venture that any other human being would say is foolish to do. But the cross has supernaturalized even our character and said, Lord, here we are. Send us into this community. Okay, look, back to Avengers Endgame, and I'll finish with this. Tony Stark has traveled back in time and gets to speak to his father in the months before he will be born anonymously. Boy, can you imagine that? What would you say to your father if you could go back in time in the few months before you were born? Oof. Well, the first thing that he notices when he's mixing with him is he finds that his father is a little more humble than he often thought he was when he was a child. At one point, his father says, you know, the greater good has rarely outweighed my own self-interest admitting his own st struggle. And Tony looks at him real strangely, not really remembering that aspect of his personality. Makes me wonder how we've recast our ancestors. But as this conversation goes on, Tony, uh, his father tells Tony, who he has no idea who he is, that his wife is pregnant. <laughs> his wife is pregnant with him. <laughs> and his father drops this little line on him. He says, you know something? He goes, that kid's not even here yet. And there's nothing in the world that I wouldn't do for him. And again, the, the director, and kudos to Robert Downey Jr. for allowing that moment to kind of register inside of him. And at that moment, I believe something changes. And all of a sudden, as the conversation starts to drag on, Tony leans over and hugs his father. Again, he has no idea who he is, but he whispers in his ear. He says, Howard, everything's going to be all right. Thank you. Now, here's my question for you. How did Tony know that everything was going to be all right? 
I think he knew that because at that very moment, he was made able to give up his life and save the world. You want to know why? Because he had discovered the favor of his father. That was it. He discovered that his father loved him after all. And look, that is saying what David saw. Just through this glass darkly, the Lord Jesus Christ that came to bring us the favor of the Father. You are my son. I am so pleased with you. (laughs) And if David was dancing, what should we be doing? (laughs) We who now have the fullness of that, the presence of God that used to be localized in this ark, of course, now dwells in the heart of every single believing person. The funny thing is, is Jeremiah says that there's going to come a day where the ark will never be missed. Nobody's going to look for it. You dig that thing up, and all you'll have is an artifact. You know, nothing to take away from Raiders of the Lost Ark. (laughs) It's just a piece of furniture. Look, I I wanted to do this series for a while. I wanted to do four sermons in July where we basically walked through this outline. You were made to exist in the presence of God. But there's a problem with that presence because he is holy and we are not. But Jesus has made a way through the bloody sacrifice, the bleeding sacrifice, to bring his people in. And because of that, we are transformed into grace-driven people. I don't have anything that we could launch us from this building into that building with more than the gospel itself. May God commit us to always being about that and that only. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you drive it deep into our hearts? Father, would you drive it into our memory? Would you, would you bind it around our foreheads so we would teach it to our children and our children's children so that generation after generation will rise up and call you blessed and will continue to advance your project of tra- this transformational kingdom where you are m- making all things new. Make, Father, us agents of those people. We are grateful for the role that this building played in whatever places in our hearts and in Oxford and Fayette County that you push back the effects of the curse. But now, Father, bless us, we pray, to continue this mission to its next phase. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.